Thanks for tuning in to the Brentwood Academy podcast. Brentwood Academy is dedicated to nurturing and challenging each whole person, body, mind, and spirit to the glory of God. Through this podcast, it's our hope to provide an enjoyable experience, to hear interesting stories, listen to chapel talks, and discover profiles on members of the BA community. To learn more about Brentwood Academy, visit us online at brentwoodacademy.com. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Jean Natwick, and I am here with Jim Chapman, the art teacher here at Brentwood Academy and the varsity swimming coach. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. So, um, you have a really interesting story. And if, you, if you only knew. <laughs> <laughs> the behind the scenes. <laughs> uh, so, first of all, how many years have you been with BA? This is year number 12. Okay. And has it been all art and swimming? Because I want to hear, because I want to hear how you combine the two because those are completely you know just opposite ends of the world but i love that they come together and i want to know how that comes together in your life um and then i want to tap into something um just as big and important but i find really interesting is your adoption story of four beautiful girls um i'm excited to talk about that but first i'm going to start with being an art teacher and a swim coach here at va well let me give you a little backstory. um you know, when I was a kid, I was in the eighth grade, I'll never forget, I was drawing a picture at lunch, and the art teacher of the high school I would have, I would be going to walked by and tapped me on the shoulder and said, young man, do you like art? Have you ever thought about taking art? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, you should, because I think you're good. And from that moment on, the art bug bit me. This guy was a huge influence in my life. He wore a beret. He had a handlebar mustache and a goatee. He looked like your typical, stereotypical French artist. And I would follow that man anywhere. And so I took four years of art in high school, decided I wanted to be just like him. At the same time, I was an athlete. You know, I played baseball and I played basketball and I swam. And, uh, you know, I didn't see why I couldn't combine the two. So my first job out out of college... I was a seventh grade basketball coach and an art teacher, an elementary art teacher, and I was itinerant. I went to, I think my first job, I went to two different schools. And people always thought that was a strange combination, but what it did was it let boys know that it is okay to be creative and athletic. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that combination. And so, um, you know, so that's kind of where I I took it from there. I coached basketball for about 11 years, worked my way up, was a high school coach in Ohio. Uh, That did not end well, which is a story in and of itself. Um, uh, it, it, It didn't end well, but because of that, I ended up here in Nashville, and one of my other passions is singing. And I always wanted to be a professional singer. I had spent years in gospel music, and then when I came here, I got into gospel and country and met people. And I taught here in Nashville for a couple years before I left the teaching um, to go into the music business for about eight years. And I traveled professionally for four years as a recording artist with Polydor Records and A&M Records with a country act and 
in way back when. We won't we won't go into the years, <laughs> but it's been a few years. And then after that, I traveled with Loretta Lynn for wow. for about five years, maybe make that six years. I traveled with the Queen and sang back up with her. Uh, but when all of that sort of came to an end, and it was time to do something real again. Um, I got back into coaching, and you know, I'd always been a basketball coach, but I'd always also been a swim coach, and I'd managed swimming pools and coached summer swim teams, you know, and all this stuff. And when I got back into education, uh, there were a couple jobs open, and I was an itinerant art teacher again in Rutherford County uh, here in Tennessee, and uh, and also a varsity swim coach at Laverne High School, and then I started coaching a year-round team and. And trying and kind of tying all that together from uh, you know, and and doing it the way I did when I was a basketball coach. You know, I, I'd coach art, I'd teach art, and I'd coach swimming, and and grew um, both of those into like big things. You know, I just I've always had this knack where if I walked on the deck of the pool, the kids would love me. They'd follow me anywhere. The team would grow. The same thing in in you know, my art endeavors or, or whatever, or my singing or whatever. And that all worked really well for me. So I was coaching at Laverne High School, and we would swim in the same division or league as Brentwood Academy. And Brentwood Academy's coach at that time was a very good friend of mine. And uh, they would come to Laverne, and we would beat Brentwood Academy. And um, and one and, and one day... Uh, you know the the situation at that high school was was not good. The leadership, anyway. That's that's a story too. But but one thing led to another, and I just knew I had to get out. And I just remember walking out of that school twelve years ago, and walking through the parking lot, and saying, and looking up, and saying, "God, you've got to get me out of here." I no sooner said the words, and the phone rang, and it was Ray Mulliken. Ray and I had we'd gone back a little we'd gone back a ways and uh, through our mutual friendships and families but he had called and said Jim he said I think we might have something over here for you it's an art and a job and a, and a swim coaching uh, position would you be interested and the rest is history and so here I am and I've walked in those doors at BA 12 years ago and it's I've called it school heaven and ever since and uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. Wow, clearly God's timing. It was it was totally God's timing, and uh, He's done that a lot in our lives. It's kind of been kind of weird, but yeah, He's He's been there at the times when we've needed Him most and didn't really expect it. Well, you definitely are the jack of all <laughs> trades because the Loretta Lynn thing—that's that's news to me. <laughs> <laughs> Swim, art, singing. <laughs> um, so I want to to move to another interesting side of you and your family life, which is your adoption story. You adopted four girls from China. And how old are they now? When did you adopt them, and how old are they now? Okay, well, we have four biological children, and then there's an eight-year gap between our youngest and then our the first little girl that we adopted. Wow. That's big. Okay. Izzy is now 17. We adopted her in 2001. Uh, Lydia is 13. We adopted her in 2004. If I don't get these dates right, I'm sure my (laughs) wife, when she listens to this, will remind me, Jim, you didn't get the dates right. (laughs) 
Uh, and of course, you know, when we adopted Izzy, we thought, you know, this is great. You know, God's called us. We're going to adopt this little girl. And, you know, we left it at that. But, you know, four years later, another opportunity came up and we're thinking, okay, we're not getting any younger. Can we handle one more? You know, when you start adopting, you really see the need. I think a lot of times we get caught up in our own lives and we really don't see the need that's out there. But once we adopted Izzy, we and we got to go see where she was from and the orphanage where she was taken care of for that first nine months of her life, and and you got to see the conditions. You're like, oh, we've got to do more. So four years later, uh, an opportunity arose, and we adopted Lydia. And then we were finished because you know we're not getting any younger. But um, but then again, God intervened. And I had been going on several mission trips to China, and one of the places we go is in Beijing at Hope Foster Home. And there was this little girl over there named, well, there was this one. Uh, there was a trip twelve years ago. I was leading a Show Hope trip, um, and in fact, there were two Brentwood Academy kids on this trip. And that was the year I got hired, so I got to meet a couple Brentwood Academy kids and see what kind of quality, you know, kids that come out of this school mm-hmm. are. And these these two were just epic. And um, the night before we left to come home on that trip, they handed a little girl in my arms and said, this little girl's not going to make it about six more weeks. We just don't expect her to live. She had so many things wrong with her. They said, we can't even provide medication. And I said, well, what do we need to do? And she says, they said she needs a sponsor. So I emptied my pockets, gave them every dime I had, and I became her sponsor. And so... um, they said, Jim, you know, when you become her sponsor, you get to name her. You get to give her a Western name. Her Chinese name was Shi Bao Yi. Uh, and I've always wanted to name one of my girls Jane. And my wife was like, no, no, I don't like that name. We're never naming our child Jane. So I said, okay, I'll show her. I'll just, this little girl we're sponsoring, we'll call her Jane. <laughs> and I added a Y in the middle of it to make it a little fancier, you know. So. We sponsored Jane, and I went on two more mission trips. Um, and every time we'd go to Hope Foster Home, and every time Jane would be there thriving. She got the medical attention she needed and started to thrive, started to grow. And I would go in, and I'd make it a point to go see Jane since we were her sponsor. And I loved Jane. She was so funny when she was little, and she'd run away from me when I'd go in, and I'd go, She bow ye, she bow ye. <laughs> And she'd go running away, and I'd bring her gifts. And then finally she'd end up sitting on our lap. And, you know, but then again, you know, it's sad because after three or four days you go on, and then you don't get to see Jane again. So we did this a couple times, and Jane was unadoptable. Uh, Her list of medical needs was into the, I think there's a dozen things that are, you know, use the word wrong. It's probably the wrong word, but there was a dozen things wrong with her. Uh, not the least of which is she's missing half of her brain. She's literally missing half of her brain, the part that controls her her speech and her motor skills. But yet, you know, I kept watching this little girl, and she was speaking and running and jumping and playing and smiling and all of this. But we got a we got an email from the director of that foster home one day, and uh, they said, hey. Somehow Jane has made it. We've advocated long and hard for this little girl, and she's made it onto the special needs adoption list. Do you know anybody who would like to adopt Jane? And we said, 
Well, no, but but we'll look around. We'll ask. Um, this was about eight years ago. My sister at that time, Mary Beth Chapman, um, her and her husband Stephen had just lost their niece, Maria, in the you know really tragic accident, and um, and she was even considering adopting her at one time. And of course, we convinced her that that would not be a really good idea. So. My wife and I, we asked around, and all of a sudden my sister said, look, she says, if I pay for it, will you adopt her? And I'm like, okay, you've just removed the biggest obstacle. So, yeah, we'll, we'll take her. So, once again, God intervened through my sister at this point, and we ended up adopting Jane, which was, you know, we weren't going to adopt anymore, but there was Jane, and she was four and a half when we got her. And we are definitely finished at that point. <laughs> we are done. But then again, three years later, um, you know, through the tragedy of my niece dying, um, you know, Show Hope managed to raise funds to build a giant, huge foster home facility known as Maria's Big House. They named it after Maria. Yeah, nine years ago, um, the doors opened, and one of the first eight kids that came to Maria's was Fallon, our daughter. And she had a severe, severe heart deformity issue. And um, anyway, the whole purpose of Maria's and all the care centers that Show Hope um, funds is to take in the, the children that really have no hope. And the other orphanages in China are not really going to provide the resources, so they go get these kids, and they, they provide the necessities that they need and at the you know at the least those kids are going to die in the arms of somebody you know at the most they're going to get healed they're going to get the treatment they need and they're going to get adopted and there's about a 65% success rate so you know after a few years 7 out of the 8 of those initial 8 children got adopted to families wow. and Fallon was the only one that was left and my sister, about this has been three years ago now, my sister and brother-in-law were over there, and they saw the last of the kids go. And my daughter Fallon just standing there crying because her last friend had gone. And Fallon was unadoptable because of her severe heart problem. You know, China would not allow her to be adopted. And she was about six months away from having to go back to the state orphanage. And um, at that point... Yeah, she would not have survived. So once again, um, God intervened. We're sitting and having lunch with my sister and brother-in-law, and my wife says, hey, whatever happened to this little girl named Fallon? And at that point, Steve and Mary Beth looked at each other, and they said, I did not say anything to her. And they said, you know, we think we can get her adopted, but we need a family. We need a family for her because this was a pretty serious thing. And my wife just blurted out, okay, we'll take her. This was my turn to look at her and go, what? I thought we were done. Yes. And so uh, and so we, I mean, I think we set a record in getting paperwork finished and through and all that stuff in order to get Fallon back in, t- in, in time. And, you know, China put real restrictions on her. She wasn't allowed to fly because of the pressures in the airplanes. Um, um you know, we had to take trains everywhere in China when we're going back and forth from the embassy to the consulate to get 
her travel papers and all this. She wasn't allowed to try, I mean, to fly. And um, and our doctors here and, and doctors over there didn't think it was a good idea to fly her home. So we had this elaborate plan to put her on a train with my wife and my sister and to travel through Siberia and Russia and through Eastern Europe and over across under the, under the, um, you know, take the tunnel over to England and, and then take the Queen Mary or the Queen Elizabeth to New York where Uncle Steve's bus would be sitting there waiting for Fallon to bus her back home. And that would take about a month. And that trip alone would probably kill her. The stress alone. But that was our plan B. Uh, and finally, our doctors decided that if we had kept her on, if we kept her on oxygen, they think it was worth the risk to to fly her home. And sure enough, we got her on the plane, got her on the oxygen, and she managed to do very well on the plane. And this has been a little more than this has been a little less than three years ago. And we brought her home in February. And uh, when we got her home, took her immediately to Vanderbilt, and they did a lot of tests and found out that what she had was, in their mind, was fixable and that they think they can they can do what they need to do to give her a nice long life. So well, she's gone from, oh, it's the whole... Heaven to hear. And every, every time we go to the doctor, she just had a, an appointment this week. They're amazed at how well she's doing. You know, they've added stents and shunts and all this stuff in order to increase her circulation and She's got one more major surgery coming up probably next summer and, you know, where they'll put in a, a valve and create an extra chamber. She's only got a three-chamber heart now. They'll create the the fourth chamber. And they'll, That's amazing. They'll replumb her and put everything back together, and they seem to think that they have a really good chance of, of success. So, so here we are. You know, we're 100 years old, and we've got... <laughs> We've got a second grader in the house, and uh, you know we're just living the life. So, to think that this child they thought would not even make it by plane, and what is she running around playing like? Well, now she can't run around too much because she will turn purple and she gets winded, right. you know, very easily. But she's doing a whole lot more than she used to do. And our our heart doctor at Vanderbilt said he said you really did dodge a bullet. He said as bad as that one pulmonary artery that she does have it was pinched and crimped and he says it was real close to rupturing and it very well could have happened on the plane he said it really could have he says you you dodged a bullet and uh, be grateful for that and we are and so now uh things are looking up you know we're optimistic always praying though because you never know what can happen um excuse me what advice would you give to people, um, families that are thinking about adopting? Because this is a big commitment, especially every time you've said, we're done. And it's right. and it's a lot, especially right. when you're adopting a child with needs. Right. Um, what would you say to families that are thinking about that, praying about that, scared? What advice can you offer? Well, it definitely is a step of faith that you have to take, and that's the easy church answer. Right. You know, uh, we're living this life right now, and, you know, on the outside, you know, the girls look cute, and we look like a fun, happy family, and we are, but it's not easy. You know, it's really not. You know, the appointments that you have to make, the staying on top of everything, making sure she stays warm enough, making sure the kids are provided for. The biggest obstacle is 
that initial outlay of $30,000 for the adoption process. That's usually the biggest obstacle. But I would encourage people, there are options, there are places for people, there are organizations that provide grants to people who are adopting. So they take away the financial obstacle. Um, And a lot of times it's the husband who is always, no, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do that. I would just encourage husbands to support their wives if they have this idea, look, I want to do this. Husbands, step up. You know, and say, okay, if this is something you really want, I'll support you in that. And vice versa, if there's a dad who thinks, man, I think adopting might be cool, just know that, you know, they become, they are your children, but once again, you're still a parent, and you're going to run into things that you need to deal with and, and take care of, and not every adoption is all rosy and, and happy, and there sometimes there are major issues that you have to confront but that's not what it's about. It's about saving the life of a child. It's about giving them a better life. Um, and it's not about us anymore. It's just not about us. We've, we've got to stop thinking about ourselves and um, and just put the needs of those kids. And there are so many. I mean, there are so many. There's two or three million babies in China alone without homes. So... It's hard to wrap your head around. And and you said something earlier along these lines about, you know, about their needs. Because it's easy to think about, how is this going to affect my life? I mean, I already have kids, or I work, or this is just hard. But I think also by you going there and seeing the conditions and the need. I mean, I can't imagine how that wouldn't change a heart. Well, I I don't, yeah, it, it does change you, um. I've been into some pretty disgusting orphanages, you know, where the smells are bad and, and the conditions are bad, and and it does change. And I've been in some that are really nice, you know, just... But still, they are children without families, without parents. You know, and a lot of times, the 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 birth mother will abandon these children with the hope that they are giving them a better life. And, um, you know, we're convinced that um, Izzy's birth mom was probably hiding in the bushes, waiting and watching to see if anybody would pick up that little cardboard box that she had put her in, you know. Oh, my goodness. I know. How I can't can, wrap my head around it. I can't either. And every time I look at Izzy... I just hope that somebody in China got to her mom, she got to meet Jesus, and we can meet her in heaven. I have to believe that. That those, that's a, that's a, yeah, for those mothers, yeah, I can't imagine having to let go with, with that hope. There's got to be something better for my child. That's right. With that hope. Can you imagine? I, I couldn't imagine. You know, and Lydia's story is the same way. And we have we don't know anything about Jane's story, how her life even began. Um, so we have no idea what what's involved there. And then Fallon, even to this day, my sister still and the people are still can't remember how Fallon ended up on the doorstep of Maria's big house. They just can't 
they don't know. So, but there's more to the story on that side that we we may never know, or we may know one day. Who knows? Right. Yeah. But the neat thing is that you are creating a whole new story for her. Wow. Talk about hope and blessing that uh, the work you and Yolanda have have done is pretty amazing. And on that note, I want to mention that (laughs) you and your wife Yolanda were in Washington, D.C. in September, is that right, to receive um, the award, the Congressional Coalition uh, on Adoption. Did I say that right? Is that it was called the Angels in Adoption. Angels in Adoption. Award. Yes. Okay, so you, the Congressional Coalition. Yes. And I'd love to know. Um, tell me about that award and what does that mean? What, well, we're still not sure what it means. Um, I think it's a way to just let parents know that hey, we're we understand what you did was, you know, above and beyond. And we just want to recognize you. I mean, we don't, you don't do it to be recognized. Right. You just, you don't. You don't even think about that. And when we, you know, got the, the call, we're like, okay, what is this? So, but it was cool. You got to go up there and you got to meet the, the senators who, you know, are the head of the coalition. The adoption coalition in, in the government is the largest governmental coalition of congressmen and senators. Of any coalition, of any caucus there is, the adoption caucus. So there is a real caring and outpouring for, and they see the need for, and they're genuine. You know, a lot of times we think politicians are just out for whatever, but when you get to meet them in a situation like this, you can see that they genuinely care about what can they do to help us as adoptive parents, as uh, what can we do to make the process easier for you? What can we do to, what kind of things can Congress do to help? You know, um, the adoption tax credit, for example, is is great. I mean, we didn't even realize how good of a benefit that was, you know, but it, it it's huge. And, uh, and Congress sees that because they know that it's expensive to adopt and it's also expensive to take on an extra child or two or three or four. And okay. uh, and they see the need and they really try to do everything they can to help. That's really good to hear. Yeah. I was unaware of the extent of the help that they Yeah, I was unaware of all that too, but you can tell there's a genuine concern. We got to meet several congressmen, several senators, and talk to them face-to-face about these things. And... and uh, and it was just not us. There are representatives from like every state, mm-hmm. you know, senators they nominate, I think. And, and so it was like a, you know, it's just a big whirlwind. Then you get to do the tours and everything like that. But, you know, the bonus for us was my son lives in D.C., so we got to see him and his wife for a few days, too. So, Well, now, was your sister and brother-in-law, Mary Beth and Stephen Curtis Chapman, there along receiving the award with you? They were They were there. Um, they came in, I think, later in the week. I think Stephen was out on the road. Um, but they were the national honorees. There's like state honorees, uh-huh. and then there are national honorees. They were the national honorees, I think, back in 01. When was 9-11? Is that, was that 01? Or? They were the national honorees that day, and they didn't get to receive their honor because of the attacks on, on the Trade Center. 
And so they've gotten theirs retro, retroactively. Uh, so, but they were there. And, Slight uh, delay. Yes, yes. And he was. Uh, they were there to uh, uh, perform. I think Steve sang a song at the at the gala. You know, so they they came in later in the week. But yeah, they were there and they went to us. Went with us to all the meetings and all that. Because it's my sister's fault that we're in this mess anyway. She got it all started when they blame it on Mary. Oh, <laughs> well, blame it on right? Mary Beth. You know, she adopted. They adopted Showy a year before we got Izzy, and I'll never forget when Showy came home. It's like I looked at my wife and said, "We gotta go get one of these." <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and that's what started it all. So, well, that's wonderful, and I think that you all are doing such great work, and I love that. I love that as a family, you, your family, you and Yolanda, and Stephen and Mary Beth. You know. On this journey together, you have somebody so close to you to walk this journey together. And, you know, I I think, too, that sharing your story, because I know that there are a lot of families that are questioning, wondering, thinking about it, scared. And it's nice to hear your story because it, it really puts some real perspective into what it's like. And also your experience going there and, and hearing your your heart moved. Yes. Called, you know, calling from God that this is what you need to do well another layer to all of this is we we had some serious conversations with our biological children because you know um you know we're bringing a little child home and we wanted to make sure that they were on board with all of this and they could not be more supportive they were like oh are you kidding this is great and my boys when izzy was little they would grab her up and snatch her because she was a girl magnet if they were carrying around little baby Izzy, all the girls would come and talk to them. That's right, babies and puppies. Yeah, yes. And so so they saw the real value. So, uh, yeah, and then, um, of course, as we you know started getting older, started adopting little girls with medical needs, that's when their concerns were a little more vocal. Uh, but they were still very supportive. And, um, you know, they've even, they've even got plans for what's going to happen, you know, in the future, you know, who's going to take care of who, if wow. all that stuff. They've thought They're that far ahead. That. Yeah, they really are. And so it's been a whole entire family effort, you know. So not just my not just my sister and brother in law, but even our our big kids. Yeah, and and really, your actions and your choices and how you're managing this with your family. What what an impact that is on on your kids in terms of knowing who they should be, you know, caring for others. And, well, we don't know if we're doing it right, um, and we don't know if what we're doing is what we should be doing. But we we feel that it that is, you know, we just feel we've done what we've been called to do, and uh, and hopefully, and I, you know, it's already second generational. My daughter Bethany lives in Tampa, and her and her husband adopted a little boy domestically when he was one day old. So our first grandchild is adopted. That's and so how about that? And it won't be the last. I'm, I am convinced that our children will all adopt. They were so. really moved by this. Yeah, they, yeah, they they've made such the an impact on our kids. So. That's fantastic, Jim. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I know that it's, you know, a, an amazing story to share, but also probably emotional and a journey. No, you think? <laughs> <laughs> I saw some tears over there. Okay. Um, but thank you so much, and I, and I hope that, you know, the girls and anybody with any health issues continue to do well and we'll be praying for them and um, we're blessed to have you here well thank you it's good to be here at school heaven 